Hello and welcome to our podcast, Battleground Ohio, assessing the 2016 presidential election. I'm Steve Kendall. Back in 1992, political strategist James Carville famously said, it's the economy, stupid, to describe what voters most cared about during the race between George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Ross Perot. But what about 2016? Do economic issues top voter concerns in this election? Today we'll discuss key differences between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump when it comes to the economy and their plans to create jobs. I'm joined by Dr. Melissa Miller of BGSU's Political Science Department and by a dual alumnus of the Political Science Department, Wade Gottschalk. Wade not only graduated from BGSU as a political science major, but received his master's in public administration right here in the Political Science Department. Now, Wade, it's the executive director of the Wood County Office of Economic Development. It's great to have you here on the podcast, so thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Okay. I mentioned the 1992 election when economic issues seemed to reign supreme in the minds of voters. So what are we seeing this year in 2016? Is the economy a top concern of the voters? Definitely. In fact, regardless of the way pollsters have asked voters about their issue concerns, the economy seems to top the list. So for instance, Gallup has been asking people to volunteer what's called the most important problem facing this country today. They've been asking that question for years. And when you combine um, things that the respondents volunteer, some people say jobs, some say it's the economy, some say it's an employment or the deficit, you get one third of Americans mentioning economic concerns and that compares to around 16% who mentioned foreign policy. Hmm. So okay. it's really economy at the top followed by foreign policy. Pew asks a little bit differently mm -hmm. about issue concerns, but you get a similar result. So Pew gives people a list of various issues and asks people to rate the, each issue as very important, hmm. somewhat important. Well, 84% rate the economy as very important, followed by 80% who rate terrorism as very important. So no matter what, the economy is at the top, followed by national security. But here's a caveat. Mm -hmm. Voters okay. are clearly concerned about the temperament of the candidates in this election, arguably uh. for good reason. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't have survey questions yet <laughs> that, that, that ask folks, mm -hmm. you know, which is more important to you, the temperament of the, of the uh. candidates or their issue positions. So we don't really know. But of the mm -hmm. issue concerns, economy, very important. Still still at the top of the yes. list. So with that being the case, that the economy is a key concern of voters, they are, of course, concerned about economic conditions. Um, how would you describe the current state of the economy on the eve of the presidential election, Wade? Um, the state of the economy is actually has been doing pretty well, again, for, for most of the last several years. Um, you know, the recent jobs report that came out showed a, a gain of about 150,000 jobs. Um, that'll be revised a couple of times going down the road. I think more, uh, and an uh, unemployment rate of uh, 5%. Mm. Um, more importantly, I think the last year, I think you know people's perceptions are unlikely to be swayed by a one month report that, that many people don't mm -hmm. see. But over the last year, um, we've seen two, almost two and a half million new jobs in the last 12 mm. months. Okay. Um, the unemployment rates stayed virtually unchanged during that time, mm -hmm. which shows that there's been a, people coming back into the labor force, ah, um, okay. which is which is good news. I mean, so mm -hmm. so you'd rather have people coming into the labor force at a low unemployment rate with it staying unchanged sure. with those kind of job creation numbers. Wages wages have been fairly stagnant throughout most of this um, mm -hmm. recovery. Um, real wages are up a little less than four percent over the recovery in the last mm -hmm. um, year. Um, wages, not real, but just nominal wages are up a little over 2%. Um, but we do know that um, median household income, although 
possibly less reliable today with the number of retirees that are mm -hmm. starting to get pushed into that um, with fixed incomes. But we know that median household income saw record gains um, in for the 2015 reporting period going you know back 40 years. So um, the, the data on the economy looks like it's it's relatively um, good, mm -hmm. um, not spectacular, um, but but fairly stable and, and, and relatively mm -hmm. good numbers. Yeah. Okay. Now, when we look at uh, 2016 and compare that to other recent elections, how do those conditions compare to, say, the environment we're in in 2008 at this time in a presidential election year and, and 2012? Uh, so I did a little digging. Obviously, uh, 2000, um, going, I guess I'll go back to 2012 first. Mm -hmm. um, so 2012 was interesting because we were, you know, we had the Great Recession in 2008. So, so those numbers are a, a little <laughs> bit different here. Uh, but 2012, we were still kind of in the, that really beginning of the recovery. It hadn't been that oh. strong at that point. Mm -hmm. So, um, although the economy had gained 170,000 jobs in the report prior to the election, um, and had gained about two million jobs over the year prior. Mm -hmm. um, the unemployment rate was still almost 8%. It was at 7.9%, uh, which, mm -hmm. is, which is very high, right. although it had come down by a full percent over that previous year. Um, so what you saw was an economy that was recovering somewhat slowly. The okay. unemployment rate was still f fairly elevated at almost 8%. Mm, right. um, but job gr creation had been pretty strong going into that. Mm -hmm. uh. um, so that's what we saw kind of going into 2008. Again, incomes at that time were fairly stagnant across the board, which right. you'd expect when you have a high unemployment rate. It's hard mm -hmm. to see incomes yeah. um, Rise. rising quickly when you have a lot of unemployed people in those numbers. Um, going back to 2008, obviously the, the issue with the 2008 data, what I looked at was the data as people in 2008 would have seen it. In other words, mm -hmm. I, I looked at the actual report that uh, would have been published, not the revisions. Uh -huh. And so what we've seen is the revisions have shown that the recession um, was actually much worse. It's just that the data wasn't captured at the time, wasn't, wasn't, which, mm -hmm. which happens all the time with economic data. Yeah. Um, so going back to that 2008 uh, election, the, the month prior to the election, the economy had lost 160,000 jobs. Hmm. And the unemployment rate was at 6.1%. But keep in mind that over the previous year, the economy had lost half a million jobs, wow. and the unemployment rate was actually up 1.4%. So although 6.1 was still lower than the almost mm -hmm. eight we saw in 2012, in 2012, right. it was on its way down. In 2008, that was, unemployment rate was, was up by a point and a half, yeah. which is which is a fairly mm -hmm. substantial jump. Right. Um, so that's what we saw. Now, again, going back, you know, growth rate wise, fourth quarter of 2008 was originally estimated at negative roughly three percent hmm. um, growth. Um, when it was revised uh, about six months to a year later, it turned out that was actually almost nine percent negative. Oh. Um, so you were you mm. went from what would have been a, a relatively strong to modest recession mm -hmm. to near depression levels yeah. of, of growth rate for that quarter. So yeah. um, people likely felt that even though the data even the numbers didn't weren't it. reflecting it right. at that point yet, right? And right. if I could just interject, because that's mm -hmm. it's so interesting, Wade, about the data that you just provided and, mm -hmm. and the difference between what really was going on economically and what people perceived based on the unrevised right. economic reports. Going into 2008, that gave Barack Obama, as the Democrat in the race, an advantage because this is, there is this perception mm -hmm. that if the election is about the economy, the Democrat tends to benefit because voters give the benefit of the doubt that the Democrat will do a better job in most elections. Mm. Okay. So if, however, the race or that election is about national security concerns, mm. then it's the Republican who uh, benefits. Mm -hmm. So um, just what Wade has described on the eve of the 2008 election, 
Uh. Barack Obama was already doing very well, mm -hmm. and I think that that particularly what happened in the fall of um, 2008 um, with mm -hmm. the, the crash, the you know, right. you know, the sudden realization that Wall Street firms are failing and so forth, helped mm -hmm. Barack Obama at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, since we you know, we talked a little bit about the numbers versus how the average person deals with those, uh, since most voters aren't truly conversant in those, all of those economic indicators. They may have a general sense about how things are going in the country overall. Uh, mostly though, people tend to be concerned about how, they're, how they feel they're doing personally in that economy. So how important are those perceptions right now about this current economy? And you know, we're, we're a little less than basically over two, little two weeks out from the election. So what do we think is the perception this time versus what the numbers are saying? Because as Wade, you said the numbers look not great, but not bad. They're, it's a decent, whatever, sort of recovery going on. How do people really feel about that? Do they feel that that's happening to them personally, or do they feel, I'm not part of that supposed good economy that's going on? Well, political science offers two general theories as to how economics can influence mm -hmm. people's vote choice. Right. And the first theory is called pocketbook voting. Right. This notion that voters go in to cast a ballot mm -hmm. and they think, how am I doing personally at a financial level? And if they're doing well financially, mm -hmm. then they award the party of the incumbent president. Oh. Maybe that president mm -hmm. can't run for re-election. That's the situation mm -hmm. we're in today. But if they're doing well, then they'll give the vote to the party yes. of that exiting mm -hmm. president. Oh. Okay. Um, and if they're doing worse financially and they feel like, you know, I lost my job in the last year, or mm -hmm. over the last four years, I got a new job, but it pays less than the old one. You know, again, mm -hmm. if they feel like they're doing worse, then they're gonna punish that president's party, yeah. and they're gonna vote for the opposing party. Now, that's the pocketbook theory of voting. That's one right. way to look at okay. it. Political scientists also offer what's called the sociotropic theory of vote choice. And that's where voters, instead of thinking about how have I been doing lately financially, they think about how has the economy mm -hmm. been doing okay. lately. This is more like the kind of statistics, and they might have a general sense of the unemployment rate, like mm -hmm. Wade described. Has it been going up or has it been going down? And what they'll do again is it's kind of like a reward and punish sort of theory. So if they perceive that the U.S. economy is improving, then they'll vote for the party of the incumbent. Huh. And if they feel that the U.S. economy is worsening, they'll vote for the opposing party. Now, those theories have been around for a while. There's some recent sort of combining in the literature. Scholars have now begun to say, you know, maybe both can be true. Huh. It's not either they vote based on their own mm -hmm. pocketbook or the general economy, maybe voters ask themselves that proverbial question, am I keeping up with the Joneses ah, okay. or not? Mm -hmm. But who, who do they use as a stand-in for the Joneses? They use the general U.S. economy. Ah, okay. So they say to themselves, like Wade just described, mm -hmm. um, unemployment's down, growth yeah. is not spectacular, but, it's, but, but you it's, know, it's, it's pretty it's, good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so then they say, well, it sounds like the economy's doing pretty well but I don't feel like I'm doing well. So I don't mm -hmm. look very good compared to the Joneses. I don't look yeah. very good compared to the general economy. And so they might still punish the party in power. Yeah. Now, mm -hmm. this is where it gets interesting in the context of the candidates we have in 2016. Right. Pew collected some pretty detailed data. Now, it's from the spring, mm -hmm. but it indicated at the time that Trump's supporters 
distinguished themselves both in terms of these pocketbook and sociotropic concerns. So Trump supporters were less likely to say that they were satisfied with their personal financial situation. Only 48% of Trump supporters said that they were satisfied with their personal financial uh. situation compared with 65% of Clinton supporters. So Trump ah. supporters feel like they're doing worse personally mm -hmm. than Clinton supporters. And then asked about the general economy, here we get to those sociotropic concerns. Trump supporters back in the spring were much more likely to see the country's economic conditions as poor. Ah. Almost half, 48% mm -hmm. of Trump supporters described the country's economy as poor versus only 15% of Clinton concerns. Oh, so huge difference. Yeah, you know, huge that's perception. the political science theory. I think it's really a blend of your mm -hmm. personal situation plus the economic situation, but we see this big disconnect mm. between how Trump supporters and Clinton supporters view what's happening to them and what's happening mm -hmm. to the economy yeah. in general. So that's that. Yeah, that's that. I've been left I somehow I've not been able to keep I haven't benefited from this Good economy, or right. however you want to define um, it. The revival. Yeah, yeah. Coming I'm being, out of I'm being left behind somehow, and that's and that's being reflected there. Uh, one of the things that's been difficult with a lot of the election and, and both parties, all the candidates, is trying to nail them down on specific policies. So, if we could, let's take a look and see if we can sort of dissect the economic proposals of both of these candidates. Uh, what are Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump offering voters in terms of their approach to the economy? and job creation, and then also what are the differences between the two economic plans and job creation plans? Um, so again, like you said, fairly difficult and for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. One, um, although there were some specifics uh, mm -hmm. in regards to maybe tax plans, um, there's a lot of things that touch the economy. So, so you can right. look down any <laughs> list of number of policies, and many policies will interact with the economy in some way. Right. So it's very difficult to summarize all of that in, in the time we have today. Mm -hmm. So sure. I looked at the tax plans in a very general sense. Um, use the uh, Tax Policy Center, who is a nonpartisan um, group that has mm -hmm. scored kind of both plans, tax plans, to say what they would do in terms of revenues. Mm -hmm. And then also used um, Moody's Analytics, which again is a, is a nonpartisan um, group that has analyzed kind of the whole economic package as they see it for each candidate. Mm -hmm. um, there's a little bit of, of you know, upfront. Uh, the, the person that does the Moody's analytics is Mark Zandi. He was McCain's former chief economist oh. um, back mm -hmm. in 2008, but he is also um, has not been a big Trump fan, so I want to make sure that's kind of thrown out there. Right. Um, so <laughs> looking at, at Hillary Clinton's plan um, for the tax side, um, effectively she is going to raise taxes on um, people primarily over um, $5 million a year income. So she's going to raise, uh, her plan says she'll hold um, taxes flat or cut them for people making under $250,000 a year. Okay. Basically above that is, is fair game for some raising. And there's a 4% surcharge on tax, on incomes over $5 million. Huh. Um, the projected revenue increase, um, static, so this is by itself mm -hmm. without the spending side of her Peace. plans put sure. into this. It would raise about $1.4 trillion in addition to the baseline over the next 10 years. Now, everybody always says 10 years. Everything is always scored in 10-year increments. Mm -hmm. I always find that problematic because at most you're president for eight. Yeah. Um, and, and, so, and so you have, obviously, political um, issues that could come up right. in the meantime that prevent this from being a 10-year uh, process. Right. The uh, Moody's Analytics looked at her, all of her plans combined, which would include her infrastructure spending, which would include trade policy, which would include um, you know, the, her college education plans. They, they expect that it would add an additional 2.7% to 
to GDP that's over the entire 10-year period. Ah. So it's, it's going to be a large overall number. Our economy is roughly a 17, $18 trillion economy. Yeah. So 2.7% yeah. is still a big number, but it's not 2.7% sure. a year. It's 2.7% mm -hmm. over. over. Ten um, years. Mm -hmm. About 10 million jobs, and they, they expect unemployment will, will be about 4% um, mm -hmm. average throughout this period. That's right. Right. Okay. Um, going to Donald Trump's plan, um, again, he's going to lower taxes for everyone. Primarily, the, the tax lowering is going to hit the higher income brackets um, mm -hmm. in terms of the percentage of the proceeds that, that go to, um, oh. of the tax cut will go mm -hmm. to um, higher incomes. And that's predominantly really through his lowering the business tax rate to 15% from its current 35, oh. including pass-through mm -hmm. entities. That's a big, that was a uh, big go yes. between the, the Trump campaign didn't want, had it for a while kind of committed one way or the other. They've recently mm. committed that, that the 15% pass-through, 15% uh, corporate rate would be pass-through entities, which would be like basically every small business in the country, ah, okay. which would take that um, business income as personal income, would now basically pay a 15% rate on that. Um, mm. The uh, Tax Policy Center, again, looked at the, the tax plans. They would, they estimated that Trump's tax plan would increase the debt above baseline by an additional $6.2 trillion um, over that 10-year period. Um, again, the, the dispute here is, so the Tax Policy mm -hmm. Center and the CBO um, for the baseline scenario have been assuming 2% GDP growth right. rates, mm -hmm. okay. which is actually, I, I think that's a, a fairly safe number. Um, the mm -hmm. economy from 1970 um, to today has averaged about 2.7% huh. per year. Okay. So 2% in my, I, as somebody who looks at mm -hmm. economics, I prefer right. you to be safe on this yeah. stuff because the, yeah. you know, anything you get above that is going to be gravy. It's going to be good. Yeah. Um, so you, you come out ahead. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you assume a higher growth rate and it comes out lower, you, you yeah. have major you get, problems. You get penalized, yes. Um, yeah. So the right. dispute from Trump's side is, is his, his um, mm -hmm. on the website, it says they expect GDP to average 35 to 4% a year, mm. which then would cut back that $6.2 trillion ad. Now, it wouldn't eliminate it, obviously, yeah, but, but it would mm -hmm. cut it back. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's something to keep in mind. Um, Moody's Analytics looked at this, and really based on the trade and immigration issues, they predicted this would have a negative impact on overall economic growth and likely end up costing us jobs. Again, mm -hmm. not necessarily on, from the tax side of it, primarily from the immigration and um, uh. trade issues as presented. Again, we don't know what would actually get enacted and, and sure. followed through, but basically as presented from, from the websites and the candidates. Right. Yeah, now it, it's interesting because you mentioned that, uh, you know, the, the projections on or the assumptions of what growth would be like. Uh, and really then each of those plans relies on that assumption being pretty close to correct. And as you said, if they've, if they've been too optimistic about growth, that could come back to bite you. If, if they come low, then they benefit from that. So when you look at that, um, how realistic would you, would you say the candidates' assumptions on growth are? And you mentioned you know, that Donald Trump's saying 3.5 to 4. Has Clinton actually named a number that her plan actually has or not? No, um, yeah. Clinton's plan basically mm -hmm. just submitted it to the, the nonpartisan agencies yeah, the, to be analyzed, and, and, and then they used baseline. And that's they, they applied that's the two percent number. That's where they came up number. with the additional okay. yeah. additional 2.7, which really mm. over 10 years isn't a, isn't a huge yeah. amount added per year. Right. Um, you know, like I said, the, the mm -hmm. yeah. GDP growth rates average 2.7 percent, mm -hmm. um, and so 
you know, that's probably a relatively safe number. So CBO, actually, in my opinion, might even be a little low, although, again, mm -hmm. I personally would yeah. rather see it lower than higher. I think I might um, agree with you on that. Yeah. I'd rather have so, the gravy than be disappointed. Yeah. 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 But uh, so, so two points, have been, but, but 3.5 to 4 is, is difficult. Um, the last time we had a decade that averaged 4% growth mm -hmm. was like 1957 to 1965. Ah. Um, so it's, it's been a long been time a since we've had <laughs> yeah. any 10-year period that averaged just 4% growth, let alone well, anything higher anything than that. Hmm. Um, and because recessions are, re are fairly regular things we incur in the economy, you always have to take into account if you have a recession, you know, even if it's a modest recession, mm -hmm. that's still going to be a year or so of zero that adds into your average. So even if you're, if you're averaging 3.5 during non-recession years and you throw in a big zero or two, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's going to really bring the growth rate down, which is why we've averaged closer to 2.5 you know, to 2.7 mm -hmm. versus the... The three and a half to four. A lot four. of people, a lot of people will quote a three and a half to four number is what they think. But usually, mm -hmm. what that is, what they're quoting, is that's the number they expect to get when we're not in a recession. When things are going well, or our right. yeah, so it's, yeah. It's, and we're definitely yeah. underperforming that right now. Sure, sure. Um, and you, you touched on a little bit too that there are other things that figure into this, like international trade, which kind of straddles both uh, foreign and domestic policy. Um, it's been a topic of discussion, fairly important. How important has it been and, and what are the candidates offering when it comes to international trade and domestic policy uh, with regard how that's going to impact foreign and domestic policy, Melissa? Well, both candidates are really beating up on trade, I think it's fair mm. to say. And, and honestly, they're both kind of breaking with what has been a bipartisan position in mm. favor of right. free trade over the years. Free trade has been a mainstay of U.S. policy since mm -hmm. about World War II. The goal being that if you open markets, promote free trade, that you, you can be promoting global peace and prosperity through that trade mechanism. Um, and that's why the U.S. coaxed China and other nations to join the World Trade, organizations, uh, tr trade Organization mm -hmm. to sign agreements. Um, that bind them into like codes of conduct, that these free, free trade agreements then bind other nations to a particular code of conduct. Now, what's interesting in 2016, voters, and especially Trump supporters, perceive mm -hmm. that international trade deals, deals like the North America Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, and the mm -hmm. Trans-Pacific Partnership, TPP, have hurt the U.S. economy. The data that I provided a few minutes ago from Pew, mm -hmm. That data set also includes perceptions about trade deals. Oh. And among Trump supporters, 67% think that free trade agreements have been bad for the U.S. 67%, so two-thirds. Oh. But oh. among Clinton supporters, only one-third, 31%, mm. think that free trade agreements have been a bad thing for the U.S. So again, we see these economic perceptions are very oh. different among Trump and Clinton supporters. But having said that, Despite the supporters feeling very differently, the candidates themselves, you know, this may be one area, they're not super close, but they're both really backing off that longstanding free trade mm -hmm. philosophy. So, right. so to look first at Trump, he gave a speech in Gettysburg a few days ago. Um, it was really overshadowed. Um, it, was, it was billed mm -hmm. as a major foreign policy speech, laying out what he would do in his first 100 days. It got overshadowed because he spent a ton of time in the speech um, attacking his accusers, those women who've oh. come forward to okay. attack him uh, for sexual assault. Um, but if you look down into exactly what he said on trade about what he'd do in the first 100 days, he said he'd renegotiate NAFTA or mm. withdraw entirely from the North America Free Trade Agreement, mm. that he would withdraw from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's currently in the U.S. Senate right. um, for ratification, but kind of stalled there. He would label China as a currency manipulator. 
Um, not clear how that would change a lot. Um, it would trigger under U.S. law, trigger bilateral negotiations over the exchange rate, China's exchange rate. Um, he also said he would uh, put tariffs of 45 percent on Chinese imports and 35 percent on Mexican imports. And again, this, um, this gets to trying to discourage American companies from moving overseas right. that he would then, if they did so, slap tariffs on. Of course, critics <laughs> say that's going to trigger a trade mm -hmm. war. Right. Um, but these are very tough, tough positions that Donald Trump's taken. Clinton is more trade friendly than Trump, I think it's fair to say. Um, but not as trade friendly as prior Democratic and Republican administrations. So she has been saying that she she would appoint a chief trade prosecutor to crack down on unfair trading practices by other countries. She'd mm. do things like stepping up enforcement of our current trade deals. Um, it's interesting, you know, she did support NAFTA, although I think her husband championed it for sure yeah, during his administration. Absolutely. She mm -hmm. was more more of a supporter. Right. She voted against CAFTA, the Central America Free Trade Agreement, in 2005. It was modeled after NAFTA. So, so really, mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say she has backed off of real strong support uh, mm -hmm. uh, for NAFTA, and she currently opposes the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but she did call it the gold standard <laughs> earlier. <laughs> so, you know, she's, she's getting a little tougher on trade. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership is definitely in trouble, um, regardless mm -hmm. of who's elected. Uh, but they do have different trade positions. But the biggest difference mm -hmm. is between past Democratic and Republican practice and, and what and both the, of these the candidates, candidates are giving are us saying. today. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, now, wait, if American companies did come back to the U.S., because obviously that's what everybody is trying to anticipate, I guess, what would that mean in terms of job creation here? Would we see a big rise in the number of manufacturing jobs, say, for instance, if suddenly we somehow entice all of our companies to come back and bring all of those jobs they've sent either to other parts of North America or overseas back over. What would that really mean? Well, I, I mean, a couple of things just to get mm -hmm. to kind of what Melissa was just talking mm -hmm. about, uh, some statistics. So since 1992, so I kind of went back to mm -hmm. NAFTA, um, manufacturing output, real output, so the actual mm -hmm. real value of production that we've had is up 66%. Uh. But employment in manufacturing over that same period is down 27%. Mm. So okay. we're making two-thirds more with one-third less, less people. people. Hmm. Um, okay. And over the same period, again, real exports are up 188% since huh. 1992 and now exceed $2 trillion a year in exports. So basically huh. the world's largest exporter in terms of value of goods. We export a lot of valuable hmm. goods. Right. Um, in terms of manufacturing jobs coming back, the, the trick to that is, is a couple things. One, we do live in a global economy. And so right. we are, while we are still the world's biggest consumer, hmm. a lot of people have caught up. Right. And mm -hmm. so if you're a company like Apple is always used and thrown around about this, they make yeah. all of their iPhones, iProducts in China. Right. They sell them all over the world. Mm -hmm. They're not going to have two separate manufacturing places for these things, right? They're mm -hmm. going to make them all in one place. The reality of it is the U.S. market, relatively saturated iPhones. Sure. The growth mm -hmm. markets are China, India, uh, uh, Southeast Asia. Asia. Right. So, okay. so these are the growth markets. Hmm. Um, so the idea that companies are, are going to come back is, is probably not going to be accurate hmm. in the first place if they are a global seller. Right. So if they're selling globally, we're still only 300 million people out of right. 7 billion mm -hmm. people in the world. Um, it, it's yeah. not going to be nearly as beneficial to them to bring manufacturing back here if they then intend to export, <laughs> especially if you've got a trade war. But even without a trade war, Again, still, be, still not as, as yeah. beneficial to them. Yeah. In terms of what we see with manufacturing jobs is mm -hmm. um, you see a lot of output growth 
but you don't see a lot of employment growth. That's that's with current mm -hmm. jobs. So it'd be likely that if you saw, if you did see companies that wanted to return production to the United mm -hmm. States, they would be doing it with far less jobs than what happened when ah. they left, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's much more automated, much more high tech today. Um, so you're not going to bring back the number of jobs, and we can see that in the data that I just uh, talked about. Sure, yeah, the two-thirds more output and, with one-third fewer. And a lot less uh, people, sure, so sure. Um, that's something to, to kind of keep in mind mm -hmm. there. there. There's probably not an opportunity for as many jobs in manufacturing yes. to be created. As many people think as there As people are. perceive there yeah. would be, because they, they look back and say, well, if, if that plant came back, it used to employ 800. Even if it came back, it wouldn't employ 800 now right. anyway. If you did, yeah, okay. Um, the other thing you talked about, we've touched a little bit about demographics. Um, how do those focus on some of the change? I mean, what do the changing demographics mean for workplace and, and employment? Because that's, you know, time moves on. Yeah, right. kind of so a thing. just a couple of quick stats mm -hmm. on this. So, sure. so basically the over 55 population, mm -hmm. the percentage of the U.S. population over 55 mm -hmm. was extremely static for 30 mm -hmm. or 40 years going back between 19 ah. and a half and 20 and a half percent of the population. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's now 27 and a half percent and it's ah. going up at an exponential rate. Mm -hmm. um, so we are a much older population. Um, in terms of labor force, a lot of people bring up that labor force participation rate is down to you know, what it was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, the reality is, so is the percentage of the population in the prime working age, the 25 to 54 bracket. Ah, okay. it, it is also back to where it was. So mm -hmm. basically what we're seeing in labor force participation is it's reflecting the boomers leaving the workplace ah, more than okay. anything else. There are probably mm -hmm. some, some factors in there that, that could bring people back mm -hmm. in, but we know people are staying in school longer which means they're not in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And we know that the population is aging, which also then tends to me as people retire, they're not in the workforce. Ah. So the, the prime age working group 25 to 54 is, is tracking mm -hmm. nine, with 95% correlation um, to, to that um, what it did labor in... force participation rate. And ah. so mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't expect any major gains or changes in that, in that department. Ah. Okay, all right. Um, as we look now, you know, we're, we're just a couple of weeks out from the election. Um, it does sound like there are some key differences with the candidates historically as well. Uh, the economy, as we know, has been an important part of the election. So what do we think right now, where we are in 2016, if we had to say today, this is what it's going to mean, Melissa? Well, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning, mm -hmm. um, which is while I think the economy was a big concern of voters mm -hmm. as the race started to ramp up in 2015, um, and into early 2016 with mm. the primaries on the Democratic and the Republican sides, I think the economy and issues in general have been largely overtaken by issues mm -hmm. about character and temperament of the two major party nominees. And it's not, however, that the economy doesn't matter. Mm. The polls that I cited at the top do right. show that of the issue concerns, the economy is number one, no matter how mm. you ask about it. And I think what our discussion here today um, makes mm. clear is that it does make a difference who becomes president of the, president of the United States mm. because there are some key differences between Clinton and Trump. Mm. And finally, I'll say that as Wade has just laid out, Really, the economy itself is changing. Our population is changing. So right. we're in a period of transition, not mm -hmm. just between presidents, but we're in a period of yeah. economic transition. So I think after the 2016 election is over mm -hmm. and we move from debating the character of the candidates to looking at issues of governance and issues ah. of mm -hmm. um, hopefully continued economic improvement, I think public attention will then turn mm -hmm 
back to the economy and back to <laughs> yeah. those those pocketbook and more traditional concerns. What right. have you done for me lately? Mm -hmm. How am I doing? Right. Um, so I think in some respects, by the time we get to 2020, things mm -hmm. perhaps will have re returned somewhat to normal. We'll see probably the economy figure, figure mm -hmm. large in that election, but as well in the coming uh, months and years of oh. Whoever this new administration will be headed by. Yeah, and and 2016 is supposed to 08 and 12 will be a more kind of normal year in terms of economic numbers compared to those two sort of anomaly kind of years with recession that sort of thing. Then okay, great. Um, Wade Gottschalk, Melissa Miller, thank you so much. We'll be back again next week with our uh, podcast, Battleground Ohio, assessing the 2016 presidential election. We'll uh, be with you again next time. Thanks for being here.